Hello and welcome to Kicking It with Karachi, where it's all about diving deep into the cultural perspectives of music and society. Today, we're talking all about the colonial impacts, globalization, and cultural influences of music, which I know there is some fun stuff to dive deeper in, which we'll do today. I also think that our reporter will be able to offer his take on this, too. More on that later. Today's episode is sponsored by an organization called Bumblebee. So my name is Daniel Kane, and we are also joined today by Avery Walton, Ben Jackson, Delaney Baumgartner, Jojo Kramer, and Halsey Ann Thomas. We hope you enjoy, and as always, leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, guys? It's your boy, Ben Jackson, here once again on this week's episode of our podcast. And just like the rest of our episodes, we have decided to switch up our roles. So for this week, I was deemed the ambassador of our group, So I'll be leading this segment's ambassador's account for the final episode of our podcast. It's crazy to think this is the last one we've got. So I'm super pumped to be here today because I've got an awesome topic that I'm going to be talking about today. I've decided to talk about Latin American music and the influences that European culture has on it. To start off, I'm going to be giving a little background on Latin America. When they were colonizing, there were all sorts of diverse societies throughout Latin America. And some of these most powerful and some of the most well-known include the Mayans, which are located in Central America. you got the Aztec that were located in Mexico. Then you've got the Inca that were located in Peru. As the Europeans came over and started to expand, this was catastrophic to a lot of these societies. As the Europeans brought in new diseases, they brought in war, they brought in slavery, and and a lot more. In fact, as they expanded, it's estimated that the population in these societies was estimated to decrease between 50 and 80%. So now to get into the Latin American music itself. There are four major themes in Latin American music, which are mobilities, race and ethnicities, hybridity, and urbanization. Regarding to race, there began to be a question of human value after encounters of European and the natives. During the colonial period, Europeans treated everyone as if they were inferior to them. This led to the natives feeling as if they were not equal to them and that they were being treated less and that they were less than the Europeans instead of feeling as if they were equal. And over time, there developed a caste system that related to nothing but race and had to do with their social rank and their power in these societies. The Europeans also brought over a lot of things that have major influences on Latin American music and culture. For example, there are ties to classical music, ties to religious and sacred music, such as Catholicism, and ties to musical forms and harmonic devices. The best example of hybridity between native and European cultures is mariachi. So mariachi has several different instruments that involve a mixture of native and European instruments. Some of these instruments include trumpets, violin, guitars, and so on. This style of music promoted Mexican nationalism, which began in the 1930s. Even though European expansion caused great pain, suffering, and loss for a lot of these Latin American societies, Latin America refused to crumble and to accept the fact that they were going to be basically another version of European culture. Instead of giving in, they decided to make a culture that was very unique because it's a mixture of their own native culture as well as European culture. This is one of the things that makes Latin American music and culture so special. Everyone expected them to just conform to European standards, to standard, but they forced themselves to have hybridity between native and European culture. 
This is unique because it allows the culture to, and their music to continue to evolve over time, which is not a lot like a lot of other societies. So that's about all that I have for you guys today on this week's episode of the podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening, and it has been an absolute blast getting to talk to you guys throughout the semester, throughout the course of the semester. I hope you guys learned something and had fun through these podcasts, because I know sure have. Once again, thank you guys so much for tuning in, and I'll see you guys later. Hello, and welcome to this next segment of Kicking It With Karachi. I'm your host, Halcyon Thomas, and this part of our podcast is called Shaman Stories. To begin, we will be discussing how carnival evolves from pagan practices and how Catholicism really has a hand in um, evolving this practice. So to begin, we will be starting with the pagan aspects of this practice. Um, Carnival began in ancient Egypt as a celebration of the beginning of spring and the leaving of winter. When the ancient Greeks conquered Egypt, they adopted this practice as their own. The Romans then took this practice from the Greeks as well as layered it on top of um, their own Christian meetings. So this is really the first time that we start to see some hybridity with this practice um, as far as religious practices go. This is when it then became the festival of Carnevale, which literally <laughs> translates to meat farewell. Um, the Greeks used this festival practice as, um, a big feast before, um, something that was very similar to Lent, which is primarily, um, a Catholic religious practice of fasting, um, or at least an abstinence from meat in today's society. Um, for the days leading up to Easter, this is practiced, um, because this is in Christian ideology, believed to be when Jesus rose and returned to heaven after his crucifixion. Um, and then in Italy, people preparing for Lent through a huge party where they dressed up very nicely and had a big final celebration um, where they, they just really ate and drank whatever they wanted um, before beginning this, this time of fasting. And these celebrations evolved to be very similar to um, what we see in Mardi Gras today in the United States in the South. Um, a very big festival where, where everyone is just eating and drinking whatever they want and having a big celebration before very serious time periods um, as per each of their religions. Um, as Christianity spread across Europe, it brought Carnival with it. As these European powers um, colonized and invaded and overtook other countries and communities, they brought their religious practices with them. And of these many religions and practices, Catholicism and Carnival and these practices were primarily spread. Um, with this spread um, and the complexity of forces and religi of, of religion and of other cultural practices as a result of colonization... So came the increased prevalence of religious and cultural hybridity. And um, this is seen densely in Candomblé musical tradition. Um, this music is also a key part of carne Carnival in regions like Montevideo, Uruguay. Um, Uruguay practices Carnival with the integration of Candomblé, which um, has its roots in African slavery and emerged from the Salas. 
This practice uses masking traditions, parading, dancing, and drummers. Um, and this this musical ensemble is called a comparasa. The drum ensembles of the candomblé are called yamadas, and these are the backbone of any comparasa. They are organized around the piano, the repique, and the chico, um, and all of the drums are played with a stick in one hand and the other left free. Additionally, the comparasa ensemble is a result of the incorporation of the candomblé tradition and their practices as it is integrated within the carnival celebrations. And this is likely because of um, European influences in addition to the suppression of African and minority peoples um, as a result of colonization. Therefore, um, because they were unable to openly practice their own ideologies and religions, they had to find a way to combine both of the cultures that they were presented to create a musical and religious hybridity so that they were both able to practice what they hold true to their um, histories and their practices, but they were also able to behave in the way of such that the individuals who came to their country to overtake them um, preferred that they did. Thanks for hanging out, guys. Um, we're moving on to our next segment. Hi, my name is Jojo Kramer, and welcome to the next segment of our podcast. Um, this segment is titled New Music in China, and we'll be discussing um, Chinese didactic school songs as well as protest songs. Um, I really wish we could cover East Asia in its entirety, or even just Chinese music in its entirety, but I'm sure you all have better things to do than just listening to me talk for five plus hours straight. So yeah, um, in our past podcasts, we've covered the more traditional Chinese musical culture and discussed um, things like Confucianism and the Chinese Qin, um, but today we are going to focus on um, the music's development and modernization. Or honestly, it's more of a breakaway than a development, and you'll understand why in a moment. So in 1911, there was a Chinese revolution that overthrew the Qing dynasty, um, replacing it with a government similar to that of the United States. And although the establishment was largely a failure, it did represent a clean break from the old values and practices, which allowed people to explore new types of music. For example, um, music within classrooms. Many of the reformers believed that traditional Chinese music was unsuitable for the classrooms because to them, it was too old and outdated. Um, and it represented a different set of values. So a new type of school song was adopted from Japan and the West, and these are called didactic school songs. Really, the, the whole point of using these songs was to instill a sense of nationalism in the students. Um, and the songs were usually simple and short and didn't have a very large melodic range. Also, um, the rhythms were very March-like. As for the lyrics, they were also quite simple and had very direct messages related to themes like patriotism, self-discipline, military readiness, um, civic spiritedness, and stuff like that. Uh, things got a little tense though, to say the least, and this was during the First World War. So at the beginning of the war in 1914, 
uh, Japan attempted to seize control of China, stirring up lots of emotions among the Chinese, as expected. Um, and they expressed their outrage through protests and protest songs. And these songs were very similar to the didactic school songs, but they did differ in the lyrics. Um, so school songs were typically about good citizenship and discipline, as I mentioned earlier, whereas um, the protest songs were all about the political issues of that time and often used curt slogan-like language to express their anger. And these protest songs really led way for um, the later political songs developed by Chinese communists known as revolutionary songs or songs for the masses. And these songs were heavily influenced by um, Western Protestant hymns and school songs, modern Japanese and Chinese school songs, um, Chinese folk songs, and Russian revolutionary songs. And they were typically short and simple, and they used the Western diatonic scale. Uh, they also had slogan-like ideological lyrics that promoted communism and nationalism. So even with me just describing the characteristics, you can already hear lots of similarities with didactic school songs and protest songs. Um, and these songs for the masses were really heard everywhere, like music classes, um, political rallies, labor sessions, free time, you name it. Um, they were also often used in nationalistic films, which helped them become popular with general audiences. Um, and if you want an example of a song for the masses, I would recommend listening to we workers have strength. Um, you can probably find it online, but if you are struggling to find it, just shoot me an email and I will send you a link. No problem. Um, so yeah, that is all I have for you guys today. Thank you so much for listening. Today's episode is sponsored by Bumblebee. Bumblebee is all about helping out the environment, and they do it in a really cool way. Um, they take honey, instead of selling it for money from the bees, you know, they go and pollinate other plants artificially from the bees' natural source. It's such a great way to start working with keeping our environment sustainable and healthy. Go check them out right now at bumblebee.org. Welcome to the Economist's Corner, where we're going to look at culture and economic impacts directly influenced by music. We have a special treat today. Our very own reporter from Eastern Asia, Danny, is going to be with us today in just a short moment. So I want to kind of prepare our listeners for their understanding of popular music in East Asia. And I think it's important to note that 
uh, one thing we're going to talk about pretty, it's going to be a pretty broad topic on this uh, segment here. It's going to be like the timeline of music that has led to popular tunes and hits over the course of the last about 100 years. So there's been little uh, parts uh, in history where music has evolved and changed, uh, which kind of has led to the popular music we know now today. Um, so the very, very beginning of pop and music began in the 20s in Shanghai, and it was kind of the central location or root of the rise of popular music. Um, this was the root of music in Eastern Asia at the time in the city of Shanghai, and it grew rapidly um, and became a center for industry and trade. Um, so kind of now that we know just the hair of the basics, I want to get on our reporter here, Danny. Danny, can you hear us right? Yes, sir, I can. It's good to hear from you. So, uh, we started off our talk in Shanghai and how it kind of began the rising popularity um, in music, which kind of helped boom the economy, helped in translating Shanghai to the center of trade and industry. I want to hear your take on this, Danny. Well, guys, uh, here's my interpretation of this. The music has helped establish culture and popularity. With establishing culture leads to more people picking up on the ideals of popular music. While this was kind of growing, uh, so was industry and trade. The more and more people, quote-unquote, hopped on board with the idea of rising popularity in music and then became the center of entertainment and was a place for everyone to come together, thrive, thus directly impacting the economy. All right, Danny. Well, you know, that makes kind of a pretty good sense when I, when I hear it like that. So let me ask you, is it still like that today? Well, unfortunately, it's not like that today. There was uh, back in there was a tw- overthrow of the Qin Dynasty in music, and the popularity of music began to fall from an international level to a much more centralized national level. Um, it became kind of more of government propaganda than anything else, and it was mostly pro-government, very strong messages. Um, and, you know, the cool thing after that is, you know, everything has phases and, th- and then transferred to a musical type era where there was about only, you know, around eight things to watch. Um, music was very narrow at that time. There wasn't a ton of stuff out there. So what kind of kept the popper music going? And it's kind of the rule of scarcity, if you think about it that way. When there is only one thing to eat, and, and let's take this in terms of like hunting and, and animal survival of the fittest. When there is only one thing to eat, Animals will adapt, and that will be their new favorite thing to eat because that's all the animal knows of. Well, this can kind of be translated to this scenario, too. You know, there's only eight things to watch, um, and there's millions and millions and millions of people, hundreds of millions of people. Um, and so as that kind of kept kept happening and, and growing, those eight things purely became the central idea of what people listened to, um, thus became the popular music. Um and that can be translated to this scenario too. So then, after the rock, so after that, you know, rock is established, which um, really started to lead the area of rapid music transformation, leading to pop and popular music, etc. And that was the, really the forefront of expansion back to internationally known music. Well, Danny, it looks like you kind of know your stuff. So how does that relate to economics? Well, it's very simple. The more culture and entertainment that is booming, the better the economy reflects the world it is doing business in. Popular music leads to entertainment which opens up a wide variety of doors that allow for the flow of cash and more demand, which leads to money being spent, traded, and saved. And I kind of want to finish this off here with, uh, I I saw this the other day, I thought it was really cool. It's a tweet from Sony Music um, talking about Shanghai. It said, uh, you know, we're in 2020 right now, and this happened back in the, the 20s. 
Um, and it said, uh, look back at 100 years ago to the birth of popular music. Hashtag keep it going. And I thought that was just super cool to, uh, to end that on and realize it's been 100 years uh, since the start. So, um, all right, that's all from uh, I got here. Um, as always, I appreciate the opportunity from everyone uh, here from Kicking Karachi. We thank you. And uh, we'll bring it back to you guys. All right. Thanks, Danny. We always love to hear from you and wish you the best of luck. Hi, I'm Avery Walton, and I'm the historian for this final episode of our podcast. Now, as most of you probably know, the Caribbean is full of many, many different cultures that often pull from one another and have connecting themes, yet they are still uniquely their own. So this week, I wanted to focus on what sort of colonial impacts led to these styles of cultures and how they sort of developed. Now, I thought that rather than just reading off the history of how the Caribbean was colonized and how its cultures developed from there, um, I wanted to do more of like a trivia so that you could think and reflect on all of this a little more. So the first question I have for all of you is, what are the four main languages that are prevalent in the Caribbean? As many of you probably know, there are languages in the Caribbean that are very unique to specific areas, and some are even a hybrid of multiple languages. But... What do you think are the four main languages that underlie all the others? And I'll just give you a minute to think about that. So the answer is English, French, Spanish, and Dutch. So when these four main groups of people colonized the Caribbean, it led to this great mixture of all the native languages in the area, as well as these four European languages. And the colonizers made these big four like the official languages or quote-unquote official languages of the caribbean and the colonizers looked down on all the other native languages and like hybrid languages and so music became one like great discipline where natives could really use whichever language was more true to them and music became a sort of a safe space where they could express themselves however they wanted to so my next question is what are the two main religions that colonizers brought to the caribbean and these aren't so much of two different religions, but they are more of two separate de denominations. And you can probably guess what they are considering the languages that are also prevalent in the Caribbean. But I'll just give you a minute to think about that one. So the answer is Catholic and Protestant. Not much of a surprise there since we are talking about European colonizers, but it's important to note that these religions aren't necessarily still as prominent in the Caribbean because like most things, the Caribbean were able to take like certain aspects of these religions and make them very much their own. And now they have a great multitude of religions that stand out independently. Some of these include Vodown, Santeria, Shingo, Mayol, Spiritual Baptism, and so, so many more that are truly their own in the same fashion of hybridity. And of course, Catholic and Protestant aren't the only two to make an impact on the Caribbean. Depending on which areas and religions you're looking at, you'll also see Hindu, Muslim, and Jewish influences and implications. Now, my final question is, what aspects of colonization had the most impact on the natives that led to the hybridity of cultures that they have today? I know this is sort of a broad question, but I really want you all to think about it. So the answer is forced labor, and that's because the colonizers uh, would move natives all across the area to wherever like, there was a lot of resources and wherever they thought they were key places for production. So suddenly all these natives with their own distinct cultures are being thrown together and maybe even moved around some more after that. So that's where a lot of the hybridity comes from. And you also see some of the inspiration for some of the older music draw from this.
Now, as you all know, before every episode, we like to send out to you all a list of the topics we plan to cover in the episode, so you can send in your questions. And one of the questions we received in regards to the traditions, history, and social structure of the Caribbean music was, what are the greatest influences on Caribbean music itself, and more precisely, the instrumentation? So the answer to that is that the main influences and sources of instruments are obviously going to be African and European. African instruments like drums, scrapers, and bass instruments um, are a big factor, as well as the complex rhythms and interlocking rhythmic patterns between instruments. And then there's even like the call and response structure that you'll see a lot. Um, Then on the European side of this, they use string, brass, and wind instruments, and even the piano. Um, We also see some influences from East India, as well as these Caribbean genres utilize metal clappers and harmoniums. And we even see the influence of Native Americans or Amer Indians through the use of shakers like maracas. Um, now, for you all to get a better sense of this hybridity, I just wanted to play a sample of uh, just one of the many types of music found in the Caribbean. So this is called shake or rake and scrape. And we can see the European influences here in the accordion that's used. And there's also a lot of African influence in the use of drums um, and a saw, or some refer to it as a scraper. And there's sort of a complex rhythm to it. So listen for that. <laughs> So I just wanted to play that short clip for you all, but free feel or feel free to look up some more uh, examples of shake and scrape and other Caribbean music for you to like get a better sense of this all. And that's all for the historian segment of the podcast for this episode. I hope you all enjoyed it. Hi everyone, Delaney back here again, and this week is our last and final podcast. This time, once again, I will be talking to you guys about politics. And more specifically, we are going to be focusing on South Asia, the Great Partition, and um, the dispersion of the Jewish people beyond Israel. So one of the first things that I would like to focus on is the idea of Bollywood. And this is India's film industry, which is one of the more important things to focus on that came out of... um, all of the issues in South Asia, and they were able to focus on their music in order to promote healing after the Great Partition. So people were given a chance to really celebrate their different diversities and religions and ethnic communities past their traditional and classical musical genres. Um, This also came about in Pakistan in Coke Studios, and also there is a British-born Sri Lanka rapper who was actually able to get success out of all of this, which is very, very impressive. There was definitely a lot going on during this time, and it was very hard to promote music, but it it led to a better view of what 
what people want to see these people as and performances of like different theaters and like film really was able to boom after all of this had happened because people were able to really show what it meant to be a part of their society and they were able to focus on something completely different there is new this whole idea about bollywood and bengara as a use and a means of entertainment and joy and this was able to give people more of an out of being able to not think about what was going on in the world at that time because politics can and will take over some people's lives clearly we have seen that in 2020 with the election going on so many different things happen and sometimes you just need something to focus on that's not that for them at the time um music was a great way to find an out and people were able to participate and sing and dance which really gave people a good outlook on life and clearly the music has continued so we can thank all of that anyway that is it for this segment of the podcast i hope you guys enjoyed thank you so much for listening Following a topic of music in today's episode, our theme song was written by Joseph McDade. Check out Joseph and some of his fantastic creations on his website, josephmcdade.com music. As always, tune into our next episode. We will see you next time.